0: And welcome to the Earthside Echo, your source for all the latest dispatches from Earthside. In this episode, we rejoin Prince Unathi, who is fresh from his first victory as a military commander. With the help of his old friend, the Lord of Steel, Unathi was able to defeat the Barbary League, but he is not ready to rest on his laurels just yet. I hope you enjoy the conclusion of Zereski's Legion. A glorious victory, Your Highness! Unathi nodded absent mindedly as he walked the length of the great hall. Its ancient wooden beams were beginning to rot, and the whole room smelled like smoke. This place might once have been used for feasting, but the militia forces had stripped it of any remaining finery and converted it into a barracks. Now it was a field hospital. A stern faced nurse was tending to a nearby warrior. How is he? Unathi asked the man. In a heavy Southern Empire accent, the nurse replied, One of his ribs is likely broken. He needs rest. It said, there is no rest for the wicked. The man on the makeshift cot added, And besides, it's only a little bit broken. He tried to smile. Rest, Unathi insisted. He surveyed the hall again stones lay in all corners of the room in case someone passed away. Those who perished would give their spirits to the glory of Abyssinia. This was the cost of war, the cost that Abyssinia had been paying for a century, and Unafi wanted to be sure he never forgot it. At last, the prince focused his attention on the owner of the voice that congratulated him on his victory. The stocky man's broad face, framed by close-cropped hair and steel-grey whiskers, beamed with patriotic pride. "'Colonel Mwema, gunnery corpse,' Unathi recalled. "'His uniform was crisp, without a hint of blood or dust, "'and his silver buttons and epaulettes shone. "'Unathi looked into the polished metal "'and saw only an uninspired and unimaginative man. "'As you say, Colonel,' Unathi paused. "'Walk with me, will you? "'I want to check on our prisoners.' "'Mwema drew himself up to his full, unremarkable height,' It would be an honour, sir. The colonel seemed determined to drown Unafi in a torrent of conversation as they left the hall and walked toward the dungeon. As someone accustomed to making himself heard in the midst of artillery fire, his voice was uncomfortably loud in the claustrophobic corridors. From what I understand, it was truly inspiring stuff. The infantry are telling stories of you leading the charge at the head of the company and your clever plan to crack that barrier. No doubt they exaggerate, as the common soldiers are wont to do, but you have certainly won their admiration by commanding in the field. That plan of yours, who would have thought it would work? Our casualties are almost as low. As if we'd just continued the siege, Unathi shot the man a sidelong glance, or so some of the other staff thought anyway. Muema continued without missing a beat in the end, it worked brilliantly, of course, a single day's fighting, a scant few score of casualties, and a major strategic strong point cleared of its verminous infestation. Those greedy rats poked their noses out of their holes, and found themselves staring down a mighty jaguar. The colonel's wheezing laugh went on for somewhat longer than Unathi thought necessary, and he bared his teeth while trying to make it passably look like a smile. Yes, you have done spectacularly well, your highness. We were all a bit worried when you were placed in command of this company, but— Oh, Unathi cut in his tone mild. Why was that? Muema seemed momentarily flustered, as though the prince had focused on the wrong part of what he was trying to convey. It is not difficult to imagine, he replied, in what he probably thought was a conspirational whisper. A new commander, especially one with more academy time than battle time, means that nobody knows what to expect. Fresh commanders, tend to have many unusual ideas, shall we say? Their heads are full of the fanciful things that those buffins dream up, and they are not always aware of the way things are done in the real world, yes? So they try to change things, and it makes for a lot of... Uncertainty, Unathi suggested. Yes, exactly that. "'Uncertainty is a terrible thing to have in a battle. "'Everyone needs to know where they stand and what the plan is. "'And who the enemy is.' "'Unathi mused as he nodded to the guard stationed outside the fort's jail. "'A heavy door swung open to admit them. "'Let us find out more about that one, shall we?' "'As they entered,' "'A lithe young man in calculatedly nondescript civilian clothing "'offered an impeccable military salute. "'What have you learned?' Unathi asked bluntly. "'The Midge has been very forthcoming, sir. "'Full details of local deployments and troop movements, "'magical and material assets. "'Though he claims to know nothing of the relationship "'between the Barbary League and the Guild,' The report is being transcribed for you as we speak. We did not need to press him for information. He shared it gladly once he realized it was the only way he could avoid execution. Unafi noted a small gasp from Colonel Mwema at the accusation of the Guild's involvement with the enemy, but he ignored it. Any confirmation? The Guild's envoy has resisted coercion thus far, sir. I was just about to begin questioning her again— If you'd like to observe, I'd like to speak with her myself first. The interrogator looked uncertain, but nodded. Of course, sir. Right this way. He led them to a cramped cell and unlocked its iron gate. In the far corner, huddled against the wall with her knees drawn up to her chest, was the Guild's diplomatic observer. She was clad in a nondescript jumper and was shivering, though Unathi suspected that was not from the cold. Raised welts covered her arms and legs, and that was just what the prince could see. Unathi recalled the current vogue in the Abyssinian intelligence services for persuasion via galvanic stimulation. Her normally sleek blonde hair fell in a matted tangle over her face, but she raised her head as the three men entered. Please, she begged, you can't do this. I have diplomatic immunity. Unathi crouched in front of her and looked into her bloodshot eyes. They were a vanishing pale shade of blue. If you were on trial, he said softly, that would be relevant. She stared desperately back at him, her eyes widening. But the agreement... He shook his head. Abyssinian military law empowers me to detain and interrogate anyone suspected of espionage indefinitely. "'regardless of sovereignty and irrespective of any treaties or accords with foreign powers.' "'He stood up and took a step back toward the door. "'But this process does not have to be so unpleasant. "'Tell us the truth and you can go.' "'I've been telling the truth over and over and over.' "'Her voice cracked and rose. "'My name is Elga Vodyanov.' I'm a diplomatic liaison for the guild assigned to Abyssinia to observe military activities in the Maghreb under the agreement. She sniffled. Unathi, you know me. I'm not a spy. Her face crumpled and she curled into a ball, sobbing. If she was pretending, she was without a doubt the finest actor Unathi had ever seen. He stood and turned to the interrogator. Have you considered that she might be telling the truth? The man shrugged. It didn't seem likely, sir, given the circumstances. The other prisoner's account was highly detailed and specific, and it tallies with what limited information we do have. It's unlikely, given the breadth of information provided by the mage, that she isn't also a guild spy. He paused, as if debating whether to continue. Don't let the tears and the denials fool you, sir. It's just an empathic ploy. Standard counter-interrogation tactics to try to buy time to fabricate a more convincing cover story. I admit she's good, but once we finish breaking her down, she'll tell us everything. Leave her for now. I want to speak with Domège. But, sir, she... Unathi was preparing an argument to override the agent's objections, but Mwena got there first. Whiskers bristling with fierce indignation, he boomed in the man's face. "'The prince gave you an order, boy. Are you going to make him repeat himself? Move!' As the agent scurried out of the cell, holding it open for the two of them, the colonel muttered, "'Sorry, your highness.' "'Not all young people respect the wisdom of their elders.' "'The interrogator was appropriately silent "'as he followed them down the hallway. "'They came to another cell, "'and armed man and woman in infantry uniforms "'stood at ease outside the door, "'though they straightened and saluted at the sight of the officers. No change, sir,' the woman reported. "'But he's still being creepy.' Both soldiers made a gesture to ward off evil spirits. Unathi blinked in surprise. "'Creepy,' he inquired. The woman nodded. "'Sir, yes, sir. Definitely. Creepy, sir.' The interior of the cell was dark, and the male guard raised an electric lantern so they could better see into its depths. As the gloom parted, Unathi saw that the walls and floor were covered with odd patterns and symbols— painted in the man's own blood. There were tatters of cloth in the room, shoved into corners and covered in dark stains. How he had been so productive in such a short time, Unathi could not be certain. The room had a very unwholesome feel, and he understood instinctively why the guards thought the man was creepy. In the centre of it all was a tall, middle-aged European man, gangly and pot-bellied. Lank grey hair fell haphazardly around his craggy face, but it was his eyes that captured Unathi's attention. They caught the clear white light of the lantern and seemed to twist it, throwing it back in glints of yellow and orange, almost glowing. The man's gaze was unblinking. He wore a beatific smile and most of his body was covered in odd spiralling tattoos. He was otherwise completely naked. "'I am pleased to make your acquaintance,' he said in Abyssinian. His voice was soft, but carried clearly, and Unathi was unable to place his accent. He looked at the interrogator. I see you've brought friends. Isn't that lovely? This man made Unathi uncomfortable, even on the other side of the prison bars. Hands where we can see them, the guard ordered the prisoner. The man raised his arms, revealing that the fingers of both his hands were mangled twisted in odd and unnatural directions, broken bones protruding through the skin. Slow trickles of blood ran down his arms and dripped onto the dust. "'I thought you said he was cooperative,' Unathi challenged the interrogator. The interrogator waggled his fingers in a derisive parody of arcane gestures. "'Standard procedure for hostile sorcerers, sir, though he made it worse himself.' He gestured to the patterns on the wall. "'Why is he exposed?' "'His robes were covered in mystic symbols and hidden pockets. He wasn't wearing anything underneath. We offered him some clothes, but he tore them apart.' The interrogator nodded to the tattered scraps. Unathi turned to address the prisoner. "'What is your purpose in this place?' The maid shifted his unblinking gaze toward Anathi; those unnatural eyes boring into him. I am glad we could meet properly. I assume from your uniform that you are an officer, though so I must profess I am not familiar with Abyssinian rank insignias. I am here to defend this fortress, though it seems I have failed. Given that. I am to report back to my superiors. He moved his battered hands to his sides and executed a deep bow. I am honoured by your presence, I am sure. The interrogator shifted uncomfortably, but the prince ignored him. Your superiors? Why, in the guild, of course. Sir, this was not... Unathi cut off the interrogator with a look. Who taught you magic? For the first time, Unati saw a flicker of true emotion behind the man's calm façade. The smile remained fixed in place, though it became a little tighter as those captivating eyes narrowed ever so slightly. I did not need to be taught magic. It is a natural occurrence in the becoming. The man took a step closer to the bars, and something shifted behind him. For the first time, Unathi could see that a scrap of cloth had been tied around the man's left ankle. Unathi gripped the iron bars to get a better look. Colonel Mwema set himself at the prince's side, with a wary glance toward the prisoner. "'Careful, your highness,' he warned. "'He may yet be dangerous.' The mage shifted his stance, drew himself taller, and thrust out his chest— "'Am I in the presence of a true prince of Abyssinia? "'I am not ashamed to admit that, until this moment, "'my belief had begun to waver. "'I had doubts. "'I have not yet attained perfection, "'so I must be permitted some human frailty.' "'The major's eyes opened again, "'pulling a naffy into their luminous depths. "'I am delighted to meet you, heir of Solomon.' "'and I extend this most formal greeting from my master.' "'Your master? In the guild?' One of the guards took a step back, the man's presence alone seeming to push against the Abyssinians. The mage folded his arms over his naked chest, bowed his head, and said a single word, or something like a word. It was a sound older and more primal than language. It reverberated from the walls of the cell, and the world shifted in a way that Unathi's senses could not properly fathom. Time slowed and thickened, moments drawing out to impossible length. Unathi's ears buzzed as he tasted copper in his mouth. He saw Mwema's face twist into a grimace as the colonel tried to step away from the threat, moving as slowly as flowing treacle. Unathi's hand, impossibly heavy, reached instinctively towards his shield generator. Another ancient word echoed from the prisoner, and the iron bars of the cell warped and buckled, the walls, floors and ceiling all curved inward, converging on the space where the mage stood. The man began to glow a blackened blue, and Unathi realised that the mage's tattoos were glowing with faint light. It was then that Unathi fully realised the trap that had been laid for him. This man wanted him to come here. He'd have said anything for it. He must have mixed soulstone dust in the tattoo ink given the extent of the tattoos covering his body. At the third utterance, the bloody patterns in the room flared with unleashed power. Radiance suffused the major's body, rapidly intensifying from within as his eyes and tattoos blazed like twin suns. Muema was a dark silhouette. Then, like smoke in the wind, the colonel, the guards and the interrogator dissipated into nothing as the released energy burst through them. Unathi's hand contacted the generator, and its barrier flicked into existence around him. He awoke in both darkness and pain. In a panic, Unathi tried to stand, but found that he could not muster the strength to move his limbs or lift his head. Instead, he concentrated on the only thing he was capable of. Breathing. In. Out. In. The crackling gurgle and stabbing agony told him something was unquestionably broken in his chest. Dimly, he became aware of other sensations. The texture of shattered stone pressed against his face and hands, a shifting reddish glow on the other side of his eyelids, the distant sound of people screaming, Out. In. He lay there, breathing, and waited for his vision to clear. As his mind and sight sharpened, he realized he was still on the floor in the prison. Bodies were strewn around him, the guards, the colonel, and a gigantic, gory blood splatter that must have been the mage. Unathi stood up and checked himself over. He had a nasty bump on his head and a number of smaller lacerations on his skin. His shield was down and must have protected him from the worst of the spell. Sparks drifted from the box on his belt until they sizzled away to nothing. Unsteady at first, but growing in strength, the prince began to stride down the hallway. In the wreckage of the great hall, he found his grenade launcher and radio. This is Prince Unathi. Status report. Static was his only answer. Hustling up the stairs, Unathi burst into the fortress's courtyard and was forced to shield his eyes from the sudden light. The smell of smoke and burned flesh wafted through the air. The screams were deafening, but only some sounded like screams of pain. Three grotesque figures on the far side of the courtyard had noticed him. They may have been human once, but their flesh was distorted in odd ways and strange mutations sprouted from their skin. The academy hadn't covered this, but Junathi felt assured of his response. He fired a poison grenade into the middle of them. They shouted and hissed and started to shuffle toward him but the poison gas quickly worked itself into their lungs. The smaller one dropped first, followed swiftly by the others. Good, you still breathe. He lifted his radio again. Prince Unathi, status report. Prince, the radio began to cut in and out. Some sort of hole, giant creature. Unathi had to figure out what the hell was happening to his command. He spotted nearby stairs and ran to the top of the parapet to survey the scene. Human figures ran in disarray through the field below, some wreathed in flames. The fort smouldered all around him, blasted and melted almost beyond recognition. A gigantic beast, almost like a mythological hydra, spat swathes of fire toward a lone dreadnought that advanced toward the many-headed thing. Above it all, flaming meteors fell from a sky run through with coloured streaks like congealed blood. A jagged rip, a hole in the fabric of reality itself, hung open just beyond the walls of the fortress, and misshapen figures sporadically fell out of it, adding even more to the unknown enemy's forces. His people were under attack, and they were being slaughtered. The spirits of his ancestors called to him, and he felt strength returning to his body through a wave of righteous anger. Abyssinia! Unathi called out, his voice carrying over the din and radio, To me! The Lord of Steel had heard the garbled transmission from the prince, and he knew his duty. With a massive thrust, he impaled one of the aberrations before him, bypassing its many tentacles to strike what he hoped was a vital organ, if it even had vital organs. As the thing quivered on the end of the spear, Yoko looked around. A cavalry unit was harassing the enemies near the outskirts of the Abyssinian Company, but it was barely able to hold under the pressure. A mob of crazed men and women were pressed against the Mehul Seferi, and they were badly outnumbered. Ripping his spear from the creature, he performed a bounding leap behind the squad. Activating defensive coils! He shouted, his voice booming across the battlefield as he slammed a switch on his suit, triggering the experimental devices that each of his soldiers had been equipped with. As one, he and the Mehul Seferi fell to their knees as arcing electricity lanced out of their armour and washed over the enemy troops in a wave of lightning. Their bodies convulsed violently for a few moments, then lay still. Elsewhere across the battlefield, similar scenes of carnage played out as the Abyssinian forces dropped to their knees and allowed the raking lightning to electrocute their enemies. Yokoo took a deep breath as the devices sputtered out their soulstone power sources expended this area had been cleared but he could still see more twisted people and monsters falling from the great gash in the sky if they were to have any hope at all the portal would need to be closed the prince is alive the lord of steel needed to say no more the metal sephery were well trained Prince Unathi gathered the surviving steel legion to his side. The cutter had been damaged beyond repair, and he was almost out of ammunition, having used a good dozen grenades to push back the gathering forces in the courtyard below. Even with dwindled numbers, the legionnaires were still a sight to behold. They gunned down the crazed men and women while moving forward to slice anything that got too close in half with their powerful blades. Unathi knew that he would be dead if these brave souls had not stayed in the keep. Wave after wave of cultists ran up the stairs to try to kill them, but they continued to be held off by Abyssinian gunfire. Sir! The voice sounded distant. Sir! Prince Unapi spun around to see a half-squad of Mehul Sephiri at the base of the parapet below. Relief washed over him as he saw that his bodyguards were still alive. Soon, a small unit of electrocutioners joined the Mehul Sephiri. "'followed by several engineers "'and some marauder pilots "'who had lost their combat motorcycles. "'They hacked away at the tentacles "'and other undecipherable appendages "'that stood between them "'and their prince-like woodsmen "'carving a path through an overgrown forest. "'A voice echoed across the fortress. "'Abyssinia shall overcome!' "'It was the Lord of Steel, "'whose voice made it to Winafi "'before the man himself did. "'The battle is a transaction.' The lives of our soldiers are the currency, and this is the price. Unathi recollected Yuko's speech as he counted the few remaining Abyssinians, a fraction of his former battalion. They were not nearly enough to meet these aberrations head on. Bodies continued to fall from the rip in the sky, some splattering into puddles of viscera as they landed, others clambering to their feet and swinging wildly at anything that moved. The Abyssinians answered in kind, ending the horrors nearly as quickly as they arrived. Prince Unathi shouted orders over the clamour of gunfire, whirring saw blades and screeching tentacle monsters. Steel Legion! Maintain this Godhead. Yemo! Do the dreadnought! Distract that Hydra! Engineers, with me! Unathi bolted down the spiral stairway and charged through what remained of the former stronghold with the engineers and the Mehol sephiri closely behind. The Lord of Steel flicked the switch of his jetpack and was gone in an instant. The rest of the Steel Legion, including the marauder pilots and electrocutioners, gunned down and electrocuted anything that appeared otherworldly. As Unathi and the engineers navigated through shambled remains and plumes of smoke, the Mehol Seferi protected them, emptying rounds into any mutated stragglers. It wasn't long until they came across the machine that had powered the League's barrier. I need it to disrupt that portal. Unathi loosened the broken filigreed box from his belt and tossed it in their direction. Use the soulstone from this device. We'll need a burst of energy, modulated to disrupt magic like the barrier it made. Make it work. The engineers wasted no time. They immediately started opening panels on the deflector shield and pulling out parts. They refitted Unathi's soulstone into an empty fitting tore off scraps of metal from the machine and welded them back into new locations. The prince turned to give the metal Seferi his attention as they fought off waves of screaming madmen. He fired one of his last grenades into the swarm of mutated men and choked them to death in a cloud of poisonous gas. Mixed with the sounds of shooting electricity from Lunathi's bodyguards, he heard the engineers bickering behind him. We can't override the... said one, Sloppy, stupid Barbary, muttered the next. Probably the same sort of portal as a bridge, argued another. Tilt it further, followed one more. Another wave of tentacled men and women appeared, and a daring Mehul Seferi dove forward, slashing at them with his sword in an attempt to hold them back. He attempted to fall back before he could breathe in the lingering poison gas, but he was overrun. His comrades opened fire to suppress the onslaught, but it was too late. The valiant soldier became another body in the ever-increasing corpse pile. Is it ready? Unathi shouted back to his engineers. The ceiling has to go! One responded as sparks flew from what he was busy fusing together. The deflector machine unexpectedly whirred and popped, causing the engineers who were still deep in their adjustments to jump back in astonishment. It then began glowing vibrantly blue while pouring out the terrible sound of an engine being torn apart. Before they had the time to react, the deflector shield shot out what could only be described as a bubbled cone, visually similar to its barrier predecessor, in all but shape. It ripped through what remained of the ceiling, sizzling the stone bricks away into nothing. The further it travelled, the greater its span grew. One of the engineers lifted the side of the machine, tilting the glowing beam toward the portal as two others pushed rocks and debris under the device, propping it into place. Unathi stared out the newly vaporized ceiling and into the sky as the Mehol Seferi fought to keep the cultists at bay. Just as the downpour of abominations became heaviest, the cone connected with the portal. Flashes of red and blue lightning lashed out like combating spectral limbs. A shockwave rang out from the portal like a thunderous blast. Initially, it appeared that the portal fed off its energy, spreading wider with the cone's touch, but it soon became apparent that while the portal was spreading, so too was it thinning. Like a satchel being cinched at its opening, the beam from the deflector shield closed in on the portal, bending it backwards and swallowing it whole. As the edges of the cone met, the bubble popped, raining down blue strips of energy onto the battlefield. And just like that, the portal was gone. The deflector machine let out a sputtering whine as its pieces shifted and rattled. Smoke rose from its casing, stinking of burnt copper, and then it coughed once and ceased working. Would you be able to do that again? Unathi asked his engineers, his eyes still wide from what he had just witnessed. Not in the slightest, one responded. Meanwhile, the Lord of Steel darted beneath the falling meteors and creatures. As he peeled off the cultists that had latched onto him, Yuko soared toward the carnage where a dreadnought battled a hydra seemingly made of fire. He hovered beside the Abyssinian war machine and caught the attention of one of its pilots. Judge the cannon! I'll grab its attention! Let loose as soon as she's ready! Yuko ordered before rocketing back into the sky. The dreadnought, piloted by Abyssinia's finest, was a three-legged instrument of death equipped with machine guns, flamethrowers and mortars. Strapped to the top of the Titan was a heavy Gauss cannon powered by its own Solstone core engine. The pilots' hands flew over the controls of their respective battle stations, angling the machine guns down toward the tentacle-laden men and women swarming around its feet while keeping the Hydra at bay with heavy mortar fire. When a window of opportunity opened, a pilot rushed to the cannon's lever and pulled. "'Anchors down!' he yelled out. One by one, the dreadnought's legs lifted and dropped, digging deep into the earth. High-voltage capacitors on each side of the machine's belly flickered with light and electricity, until they eventually arched bolts of lightning between one another. The dreadnought's metal panels vibrated as the coils of the cannon heated." The pilots hunched down in their turret seats and rained down bullets on the cultists that attempted to climb the dreadnought's legs, buying the time the machine needed to charge its massive gauss cannon. The hydra's many heads were snatching up and devouring horses and the Abyssinians that rode them, as well as the scattered marauder motorcycles and groups of mechanised infantry that were trying to keep the great beast distracted. The Lord of Steel darted forward, held aloft by his jetpack, and lacerated the loose skin of one neck with one swing of his spear, and fiery blood emptied from the wound, burning away grass in flaming splashes. The spear again struck flesh, and made its way through the hydra's neck until it gripped bone. The Lord of Steel pulled back and stabbed again with everything he had, severing the neck from the hydra's tangled mass. The flesh ripped, spraying molten blood in every direction, and the snake-like appendage fell to the battlefield below. The attached head snapped at cultists and Abyssinians alike until its movements finally stilled with death. The Hydra let out an ear-curdling screech from each of its mouths, shaking the ground beneath it like an erupting volcano. In the moment of silence that followed, the Hydra lunged at the hovering Lord of Steel with its many necks. Weaponless and narrowly dodging each snapping more, Yakoo knew he couldn't keep this up for long. Then in an instant... A net of blue light poured outward from the fortress and collided with the disturbing portal in the sky. The shield collapsed in on the portal, and with a loud pop, both vanished. Distracted by the display, the Lord of Steel made his first mistake. One of the Hydra's chins caught the edge of his jetpack while he propelled away from another jaw. The attack loosened one of the device's metal pips, dropping its pressure and causing the Lord of Steel to plummet toward the ground. One of the Dreadnought pilots saw the Lord of Steel spiralling out of control and switched on its gramophone amplifier, blasting out an Abyssinian anthem that stole the Hydra's attention. Each head turned toward the now glowing and humming Dreadnought as it roared through mouths of fire. The Dreadnought shook and jolted back as the cannon released its only shot. The projectile rocketed into the Hydra's midsection, shredding through neck after neck like a knife through noodles. Each broken appendage individually swayed as the creature let out a blood-choked warble. While blue streaks of light rained down from the sky from where the deflector shield collided with the portal, the dreadnought unburied each of its legs and skittered toward the fallen monster. In one smooth motion, the dreadnought brought a sharp leg down onto the hydra's body. The fire inside the thing dwindled until it faded away, and with that, the beast collapsed onto the battlefield, leaving a smouldering, bubbling mess in its wake. Drained of power, the dreadnought slowly shut down, while the pilots used the last of their turret ammunition to clear what remained of the madmen below. Prince Unafi and the few soldiers that guarded him scrambled out onto the battlefield, cutting down straggling aberrations. There he found a rage-induced Oshembe and two of her legionnaires severing wild tentacles from still corpses. Ushambe, the prince shouted, grateful that she was still alive. Dankda, back to hell with you. She gritted in between tired swings. Beside her rested a broken radio and the bodies of the legionnaires she couldn't save. Unable to find words, Unathi continued on hoping that she would soon find some solace once the chaos settled. In the distance, he saw the sprawling mass of what was once the hydra and charged toward it. As Unathi, his bodyguards, and the engineers drew close, the prince caught a glimpse of a collapsed armoured form beside a curled hydra neck. Quickly, help him! The prince's voice cracked in desperation. He dashed toward Yokowo, sliding into the mud beside him. As Unathi detached the Lord of Steel's jetpack, the engineers took it from his back, leaned it against the wall of flesh that was the Hydra's severed neck, and began repairing it. The prince turned the Lord of Steel over onto his back and was relieved to see that yuko immediately started coughing. He opened his eyes and weakly smiled to the prince after propping himself up. Won't be currency spent. Not yet. You did this. Unathi pointed behind them, toward the Hydra. Not quite. The Lord of Steel exhaustedly nudged his chin toward the direction of the dreadnought, which was currently unmanned. Nearly collapsing from fatigue, Unathi let out a sigh and leaned back. He closed his eyes and then thought back to the meeting with his staff just days prior, recalling the mention of their doctrine. He wondered just what sort of policies the Hydra and the tentacle monsters had followed. Unathi couldn't help but let out a tired laugh. He would give himself a moment before ordering his bodyguards to begin gathering prisoners for interrogation. One month ago. Prince Unathi Zoreski, the Emperor wishes to speak with you. Unathi looked up from the book he was reading and gave the messenger a nod. He rose slowly from his chair, and began following her. His father had not called for him since he had gone off to study at the academy. At the time, his father said something about wanting to let him stand on his own as much as was possible for a prince of Abyssinia. Since that time, he had fought in a few minor skirmishes near Abyssinia's southern border, but they were nothing more than small scouting parties testing the might of the empire. He was surprised to be summoned so soon. Entering Emperor Zareski's sitting-room, was an impressive experience. The room was bathed in a warm light, despite having no windows. The glow came from four small soul stones that were ensconced along the room's walls. There was an ornate throw rug covering most of the floor, and breathtaking murals lined the walls. A large table dominated the centre of the room. It was covered in missives from all over the Empire, intelligence gathered from thousands of sources. The Emperor sat in a large chair at the far end of the table, his father seemed to have aged a great deal in a short period of time. Then I line, father. Unathi stood inside the doorway until the emperor invited him inside with a wave. Unathi kept his eyes on the floor. The emperor slowly stood up and began to walk the room. For some time we've heard rumors of strange occurrences in far-off places. Not long ago One of our ships was attacked by what can best be described as sea monsters. It seemed a portent of things to come. He paused before continuing. Word just came to us that London came under massive assault some few weeks ago. It seems the British have mostly been driven from the city after a strange star appeared in the sky. For the first time in years, Unathi looked up at his father. He immediately knew that something was not right. I fear that the attack was a guild plot to destabilize the world, allowing them to gain more power. Their reach is vast, and our relationship with them is at best tenuous. He paused for a few moments, and then looked at his son. I tell you this because I need someone to look into the guild's presence on our borders without creating any panic or distrust. All I currently have are my suspicions. Unathi nodded. Abyssinia always had a relationship with the Guild that stopped at arm's length. The distrust was no surprise, but they couldn't risk the trade embargoes that might come with an open accusation. It was a complex issue. The Emperor sighed. There is much that I cannot understand from Gondar, our ancestors have given us vast stores of knowledge, but it is a knowledge of the past. For Abyssinia to thrive, we must have a knowledge of the future. We must continue to grow and change." "I understand, father. Do you?" Zerezki stood directly before his son. The Guild has always been a many-headed jackal, with each head fighting for dominance. They will take what they can from whoever they can, as any scavenger will. We must ensure that when we feed one head, the other does not bite us and that when we lop off one head, the others do not see. The Emperor walked back over to his chair and threw a book onto the ground in front of Unathi. Unathi picked it up and looked at the cover. The Continuant d'Aurege Flamme. This book has caused much unrest in Europe, and it has begun to spread through Africa. My agents have been given orders to destroy it when they can find it, but despite this, the book continues to find its way across our borders. This too may be another guild plot to foment unrest and undermine our authority. The Emperor returned to his throne and lowered himself down into it. I cannot know from my seat in Vasilgepi. There is an expedition going north to investigate possible guild interference with the Barbary League, just south of the salt mines. You will be in command of this expedition, for only you know the reason for its existence. You must ascertain the true source of the unrest spreading along our northern borders." Unathi's eyebrows raised up. This was quite early for his own command. He struggled for a moment to find the words, but before he could speak, his father looked up at him again. You are dismissed. Burn that book before you leave the castle. Unathi took a knee and lowered his head, paying the proper respect, and then swept out of the room, his mind abuzz with questions. Back on the battlefield. Every single one of the insane men and women who had been captured only seemed interested in talking about the Burning Man. Prince Sunathi could see no connection to the Guild among these madmen. The Guild envoy had been killed in the battle, which was probably for the best, though it bothered him to think that they might have tortured her for no reason. Plumes of black smoke still rose from the earth, and bodies littered the plains. But he still did not have the answer the Emperor sought. As he walked the camp, Unathi saw the questioning look in the eyes of the survivors. Many of them no doubt wished to return home, but he did not yet have his answers. Make camp. When the Second Army arrives, we march west. That's it for another episode of the Earthside Echo. Join us next time for more Dispatches from Earthside.